Hello again and welcome back to Cloud9Fin, the podcast where we nerd out about leveraged credit and other similarly niche topics. So before we kick off this week, I should note that it was this podcast's first birthday earlier this month. So a big thank you to all our listeners, wherever and whoever you are. It's been a great ride so far and we hope you stick around as we grow. Anyway, this week our CEO is in town and I've managed to squeeze some studio time into his busy schedule. So without further ado, welcome back, Stephen. Hey, Will. It's amazing to be back on the pod again. It's, uh, it's been an interesting time since you and I last did a podcast together and uh, a lot has happened in that time. And in a way, it's kind of come full circle. So the, the last time we did this, we were talking about how the banks were facing some serious pain on underwritten LBO debt. And now we're starting to see how they're dealing with that in practice, how the syndication process has changed to reflect this kind of, I mean, it's like, it's kind of like a new paradigm really of, of extremely high interest rates and just endless volatility, you know, conditions that a lot of people in the market haven't seen in their lifetime. Indeed, I guess from a market perspective, things have definitely gotten a lot worse. A lot of that to be fair is inflation and general rates driven by rates. But you know, the last time we spoke was the end of April. And I think back then the Fed's fund rate was between 25 basis points and 50 basis points. And now we're at three to three and a quarter percent and probably headed even higher. And that's enough of a rates move to put almost any underwritten deal underwater for the banks involved. And the banks underwrote the deals that they're bringing to market now in, in just a completely different world and, and a different paradigm, like you said. And they've already suffered some pain. And I think there's likely a lot more to come. Um, but that said, it isn't all rates driven either. On on a spread basis, things have also deteriorated. Now single Bs are about 160 basis points wider since since we spoke in April. And what's particularly startling to me is that things are starting to look very difficult, especially at the lower end of the credit spectrum. So for triple C rated paper, for example. Back in April, the single B index was at about 6.9%. And the triple C index at that stage was at about 10.9%. So you were getting about a 400 basis point spread for triple C over single B risk. Today, that same differential is closer to 600 basis points. And the triple C index is now at a pretty eye-watering level of 16.6%. So yeah, let's let's put that in context in terms of what it means for the, the banks that are, are sitting on underwritten LBO paper. It means the banks are really going to struggle, um, especially with the unsecured or the junior tranches of, of any LBOs. And we saw that with Citrix, where the banks have yet to figure out exactly what they're going to do with the, the junior debt, which is now second lien. You, you have a few options. You can try and sell some or all of it and, and eat that loss. Uh, private credit funds might take it down like they did in, in the Nielsen deal. But it's a very chunky quantum of debt in some of these deals. And you're talking about being okay with taking potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of losses. Uh, and in particular, for some of the junior tranches of debt in the market, in practice, some of these are actually going to be unsellable in today's market. And if that's the case, you either have to hold on to the debt yourself and hope for markets to recover, or you need to get even more creative and do things like you know, ask the sponsors to consider buying it in order to bail you out. Or even if you're a you know if you're a PE firm and you're long the equity of a particular deal, then you know buying a subordinated debt of a deal can actually be a very interesting trade. And with triple C yields being mid to high teens, that's actually not a million miles away from the equity like returns or the IRRs that some of these funds are targeting in the first place by doing LBOs. 
Right. So obviously you mentioned Citrix and it, it feels like that's, you know, the, the, a good example, maybe actually the only example we have so far of, of this new, this new paradigm. So let's just talk for a minute about how different that was from a normal LBO syndication, you know, in, in the good old days, because it feels like the banks kind of pulled every trick in the book with this deal, right? Yeah, on that deal, the banks were, and I think still are, deploying their full playbook in order to try and de-risk. Um, first, it seems pretty clear that from the get-go, they decided there just wasn't enough demand um, or secure debt capacity in the market in order to swallow the whole deal in, in one go. And for that reason, they decided to retain a, a chunk of the secured debt, which was recut as, you know, quote-unquote, term loan A. And that makes it kind of marginally more palatable for the banks to hold this uh, on their balance sheet. But this is going to be a, a growing trend, and it's something we've seen both in Europe and in the US. So we had deals from Initum and uh, Kronosnet, which also had um, Term Loan A in their cap structure, even after the completion of uh, syndication. Right. And it, I mean, it feels quite likely that the next big LBO syndication, which I mean, who knows when, when we'll see it at this point, like maybe it's even ne next year, but that could be the, the Nielsen deal. That's a pretty chunky one. And given the the underwriter group there, it feels like it's there's a high potential that that could follow a similar playbook to Citrix. And as you mentioned, one of the aspects of that playbook is maybe cutting the first lien into smaller pieces and the banks keeping some of it on their own books as a term loan A, with a, you know, which generally has a shorter maturity, greater amortization. So that helps the banks get a bit more comfortable with holding it. But it's still only a partial solution. Um, you know, as they say, banks are in the moving business, not the storage business. So at some point, most banks are going to want to offload that term loan A tranche, aren't they? So let's talk about why that is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so banks have an internal bridge book. And this is a capped amount of, of balance sheet capacity, which they're comfortable using for underwriting new debt LBO deals. Um, and the idea of it is that you use up the, the book capacity for a very short period of time between when you agree to underwrite the deal and then when you sell it or syndicate the, the debt to investors. So on average, you want a deal to be on your books or you want to be quote unquote on risk for a very short period of time, ideally, you know, a matter of weeks. Uh, and I guess another way to think about it by way of analogy is to think of it like a you know leverage finance team's you know internal credit card. You get a a credit limit that gets signed off by your internal risk teams and your senior management, um, and that can be pretty sizable, often into the kind of double digit billions. Um, but you don't want to go over your limit, and ultimately you need to pay it down and free up capacity by syndicating deals before you commit to you know any new new commitments. And if you end up keeping something on your credit card for too long, uh, things can get pretty ugly. Uh, you know, Bridgebook is really not meant to be a permanent home for term loan A risk. It needs to be sold down into market or maybe for some banks it can be shuffled into another pocket, um, you know, internally. Uh, otherwise, it just starts to get really expensive and, and, and you get a lot of pressure on those kind of things internally from a capital perspective. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we probably don't have time to go into it now, but how these uh, th this remaining LBO debt is going to be treated in stress tests and, and the like is that's definitely going to be an interesting thing to look at. Um, but I want to talk about something else that is very closely related to this, which is that, you know, the, the use of these kind of um, emergency term loan A's, I guess you might call them, is, um, you know, where, where it's meant to really be a TLB, but they've, they've enlarged the, the term loan A portion to, to reduce the amount of debt that they're syndicating out into the market. That kind of term loan A is also a risk for institutional investors like mutual funds and CLO managers that bought the syndicated TLB. 
um, we, we heard this time and time again from buy-side sources we were talking to during the Citrix syndication. They were concerned about the overhang of that term loan A, basically the, the possibility that when the banks eventually try to offload it, that that could depress trading levels in the term loan B that they hold. Um, and there are two common forms of protection that investors might demand to sort of lessen the risk of, of that happening. So let's talk about those for a minute. Yeah, that's right. I've actually been a little bit surprised that people haven't been more focused on this topic. And maybe it's because some of these concepts are, are newer for folks who haven't been through, you know, this type of an interest rate uh, cycle before or, you know, seeing deals that have been, been hung before. But if you know that banks have, you know, call it five billion of secure debt to sell down, but that after syndication, they're still holding on to call it two billion of that as, as term loan A, that doesn't mean that they're going to hold on to that two billion forever. Uh, they're, they're going to come back and they're going to sell that additional debt as soon as they can find a buyer in practice. And they're very motivated to sell that, even if it's at a lower price than the chunk of debt that they did manage to syndicate. And for anyone on the buy side, that presents a massive risk, a huge chunk of extra supply, potentially being dumped into the market in, in maybe an uncontrolled fashion. That could really tank or impact you know, secondary market prices. And for that reason, there's kind of two linked concepts that are reappearing that, that are seen pretty infrequently. And to be honest, they're, they're really the stuff of nightmares for bankers to even, even be thinking about. The first is, is a lockup period. So this is where the banks agree not to sell you know, the paper that they hold in their books for a period of time, often a few months or maybe longer. And that gives the secondary market a chance to digest the, the, the deal and the debt that was syndicated and also provides people with some certainty that there's not going to be a, you know, a huge amount of supply in for at least a, a defined period of time. The second thing is having an MFN or a kind of most favored nation clause. And this can get pretty confusing. That's because pretty much all leveraged loan deals have something called a margin MFN. And that's where the company itself who's issuing the debt agrees with the investors who are buying it not to issue more debt in future for a defined period of time on you know substantially more favorable terms um, that, than the original transaction. But the MFN that we're seeing now in market is very different. This is an agreement between the underwriting banks and the investors. And that's to say that the banks won't offload the debt that they failed to syndicate at substantially better terms for a defined period of time. And typically, that's done via a, a side letter you know, between the banks and, and the funds involved. Right, exactly. So, a, a, you know, a, a somewhat secretive agreement, but, you know, a very important one for, for those investors. And on the lockup period, um, as we reported last week, the Citrix term loan A has a, a lockup agreement through the end of this year. So that theoretically provides, you know, a level of protection to institutional investors in the sense that they know when the banks might potentially start offloading it, um, which, you know, which probably wouldn't be until January. But there's one other interesting wrinkle to this as well, which is that when you think about the investors that could be hurt by some of the banks selling down their term loan A holdings, you kind of have to count the banks themselves among those investors. I mean, you know, they're, they're holding debt that, uh, you know, that could, that could move move in price. So TLAs are a mark to market. And you could theoretically have a scenario where one of the banks in, in the group that's left holding the term loan A is especially incentivized, more incentivized than the other banks to sell their chunk of it. And so they hit a low bid for it and that kind of messes things up for the other banks because it drags down the value of the paper that they might still be holding. So those other banks may have 
got the same you know got the same bid but we're marginally more comfortable holding the paper and so we're happy to wait for a better price but suddenly another bank breaks ranks sells their piece and tanks the price so there are some ways in which the banks actually might like a lockup period or, or want to extend it to sort of protect themselves from one another that's that's one possibility that we've we've heard from some bankers recently yep it's it's much better to have a controlled and coordinated sell down process but when things go wrong in some of these big deals it can be difficult to keep a unified front uh, at the end of the day that the banks who are on risk for these transactions are, are looking out for their own balance sheet um, and in some cases their own jobs so they may not all be completely aligned and you know we've seen some of those tensions historically you know on the likes of Morrison's in the UK where some of the banks were happy to hold on to the debt whereas others wanted to sell and you can start to get into pretty tricky territory and bits of the dark arts where banks may have agreed and practiced to coordinate and you know are subject to a lockup on the paper they're holding which means maybe they technically can't sell it and, and, and transfer ownership to someone else, but they may still be able to find ways to offload it without tipping people off. You know, things like silent participations or side agreements with private credit firms or hedge funds who you know agree to buy it in advance. Um, uh, and so you can you can work around it where maybe the ownership isn't legally transferred, but in effect you've you've shifted the risk um, before the lockup period ends. Yeah, there's yeah, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat or get the pig through the python, as I've heard a couple of bankers say recently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, speaking of which, another way that these LBOs are being helped along is by the sponsors themselves um, or their kind of friends and family accounts. Uh, so a sponsor or one of those accounts taking down a big chunk of, of the debt. And that's not necessarily a, a totally new phenomenon, but it's a strategy that in some cases seems a lot more necessary these days. So the obvious example recently is that Elliot took down a billion dollars of the Citrix bonds, and Elliot is one of the sponsors that's taking Citrix private. That position is locked up for a year, by the way. Um, they have to hold on to it. And Apollo took down half a billion of those bonds as well. Apollo is not a sponsor in the transaction, but it has precedent for kind of helping out struggling um, syndications by by writing big checks. So getting those those big anchor orders, that's another way for the banks to spread the risk around and avoid or minimize kind of further losses. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, in the Citrix deal, that was that was a billion out of a four billion tranche. That's that's a, a very big, big chunk. Um and I think the order sizes from some of the traditional buyers, you know, long only funds in the market, they're now certainly a lot smaller than banks have become accustomed to over the last five to ten years. And that means the banks are having to be creative and, and searching out alternative sources of capital. You know, for example, we've spoken about direct lenders participating in deals. Um, you mentioned, you know, the PE sponsors getting involved themselves. Or even we've seen a couple of sovereign wealth funds get involved um, too. So, um, you know, for example, we reported a few weeks ago that GIC took down a pretty sizable chunk of Theramex's LBO. And that's certainly not a name that you see every day and certainly not in, in single name credit taking down large portions of, of individual uh, names or uh, deals that have been syndicated. Yeah, exactly. Very, uh, yeah, like, like we've been saying, it's, it's, it's a new paradigm um, and a lot of sort of unusual things are happening. And there's one final thing that I want to note about this, this new paradigm for LBOs and that's that it's actually impacting the way that banks pitch for LBO underwrites in the first place. So, if you think about it back in the good old days you know uh actually not that long ago um if you were an investment bank and you were pitching to win an lbo underwrite you'd basically have to tell the sponsor that you were ready to commit to 100 percent of the deal that was the only way to be in contention for the mandate because it was so competitive 
And then in the commitment letter, you would agree to carve in a bunch of other banks. So the, the lead would take 70% of the underwrite and then 30% would go to some other arrangers as a way of sort of spreading the love and to to some extent the risk as well. Although back then people weren't really thinking you know, as much about the possibility that the banks might actually have to fund the deal themselves, whereas today that's that's a possibility. So, so these days we're hearing it's kind of flipped. Like what we're hearing from bankers that we talk to is that the banks are extremely reluctant to commit to 100% of an underwrite. So the only way they'll take on an underwrite is to, from the very start of the process, kind of club up with another couple of banks and commit to say a third of the deal each and then after that carve in other banks to spread the risk around even further that's right and i think the bank's underwriting appetites across the market it kind of oscillates between fear and greed and banks are of course always attracted to getting a, you know an outsized share of the fee economics by underwriting you know as big a, a slice of the deal as possible but in the current market environment with the macro backdrop i think fear definitely has the upper hand uh, no one wants to be a sole underwriter on a deal going wrong because, uh, of course, you know, you're going to get 100% of the deal fees, but if it goes south, you're probably going to end up through those fees and you end up with you know, 100% of the losses. Right. Yeah, it gets, it gets really interesting when the banks you know, effectively become the buy side. Well, um, I don't think we've seen the last of this story, but we should wrap it up there. So thanks, as always, Stephen. Awesome, Will. Thanks for having me. All right, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues and don't be afraid to get in touch and give us your feedback. We welcome it. Our London team will be back next Thursday with an update on all things Europe and I'll be back the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.